I'm engaged in this because I was stuck in the fires with my two brothers. We fought for six and a half hours with neighbours in the house. We saved the property, but we shouldn't have come out of it. Advances in digital technology are transforming the way we all do business, and location is fast becoming the nerve centre of the digital future. Why? Because in our global environment, location matters. And most data includes a location component that, when unlocked, will open new lines of inquiry, analysis, and understanding. Welcome to the Locate Podcast, where we share with you a deep dive into the lives, motivators and future legacies of some of the key players at the Locate Conference, Australia's annual national gathering for custodians of location data creation and management. Locate conferences have been bringing together geospatial and surveying professionals to connect, collaborate and learn about cutting-edge industry developments and insights since 2014. Locate conferences provide three days to deep dive into geospatial technologies and harness the power of location. everyone. On our episode today, we have joining us Adrian Turner, CEO of Mindaroo Foundation Fire and Flood Resilience Initiative. Adrian is an influential Australian technology entrepreneur who spent 18 years in Silicon Valley building businesses before returning to Australia in 2015. Most recently, Adrian has been appointed Deputy Chair of Prezi, a conditional payments company dubbed the newest 1 billion tech unicorn and is leading the Mindaroo Foundation's Fire and Flood Resilience Initiative, a program changing the way we deal with systemic fire and flood risk, helping to shift our national focus from response and recovery to disaster preparedness and resilience. Prior to this, Adrian was founding CEO at CSIRO's Data61, Adrian will be presenting his Locate 22 keynote on Thursday, the 26th of May, 2022, in the Communities and Collaboration session on Emergency and Disaster Response. Welcome, Adrian. Thanks very much for having me. So, Adrian, at Locate 22, your keynote presentation is about outlining the massive cost and impact of natural disasters societally, environmentally, and economically. Why is this something we should all be thinking about? We need to all think about it because we've got shifting climate and with climate change, we're experiencing more extreme weather events and the result of those extreme weather events is natural hazards, fire, flood, cyclone, and the result of those can be natural disasters. And if you look at just the last three years in Australia, we've experienced the Black Summer fires, which many described as one in 100-year event, as well as the East Coast floods that have also been described even by some as one in a 500-year event. We need to stop talking about these events this way. They're becoming more common. And we're very passionate about shifting the national 
focus, not at the expense of response and recovery, but to include a greater emphasis on resilience so that these events don't cause large-scale harm. As the head of Mindaroo's Fire and Flood Resilience Initiative, you have a wealth of expertise on the role that spatial data can play in keeping communities safe by reducing the harm caused by natural disasters, as well as the resilience dividend Australia can earn by getting it right. How can this benefit the Australian people, environment and economy and make ripples globally? Well, first of all, let's, if we take a moment to understand the scale here of the problem. According to the United Nations, who issued a report here in the last six months, 74% of all economic loss and 45% of loss of life globally can be attributed to extreme weather events. That's over a 50-year period, including heat wave and drought and a weighting and a bias towards developing parts of the world. Think about the scale of the problem in another country in the US. On average, there's 58,000 wildfires a year. If we bring that back to Australia, it's estimated that by 2050, the annual cost of natural disasters to Australia will be $33 billion a year. Today, it's about $2.5 billion in damages. But if we look at the Black Summer fires as one example, there was 24 million hectares burned, 33 deaths and approximately 3 billion animals killed or displaced. The East Coast floods have affected 10 million Australians. So there is an economic benefit to getting this right. There's a societal benefit to getting this right. And there's an environmental benefit to getting this right. And we recently issued a paper together with Deloitte Access Economics that quantified that economic benefit, that resilience dividend in economic terms, and quantified that between now and 2050, Australia can in aggregate earn a $380 billion dividend by getting it right, by making sure that these fires and floods and disasters never become large scale and don't cause widespread harm. My word, as you were reading out those statistics, I got goosebumps just thinking of how significantly the sheer cost could increase over the next 5, 10, 20 years if we don't get it right. That's exactly it. And, and the impact is cumulative. If we don't make progress here in the short term, it gets increasingly harder to affect any meaningful change over the medium to long term. Time is against us. It is, and that there's so much at stake. Yeah. What are the tensions involved with the response, recovery, and resilience cycle? We've got a national system today that is designed and engineered around fewer and less severe natural disasters. And in that scenario, there's an emphasis on response and recovery. In 2015, the Australian Productivity Commission concluded that 97% of Australia's spend today 
around natural disasters is focused on response and recovery after the event. And 3% is focused on preparation and resilience. It makes absolutely no sense because the flip side is there's economic studies that show for every dollar invested in resilience, you can save four to 11 in response and recovery. So aside from the societal impact, and it's devastating, if you look at the communities that were impacted by the Black Summer fires, calls to Lifeline are going up, not down. Today, there's a lag effect. The impact on these communities is devastating. So what we're very focused on is shifting those system settings and investing more in resilience and thinking of this not as an investment in response and recovery or resilience, but and resilience. It's a continuum. We respond, we recover, but when we recover, we build back stronger so that we're better able to withstand the next, the next disaster. And in the off season, when there isn't a disaster, which is the best time to be focused on lifting resilience, we lift resilience and we invest in resilience. When you say it like that, it sounds baffling that this is the way we do it and not the other way around. You mentioned before that spatial data plays a key role in being able to get this right. How does machine learning apply to spatial data play an important role at each step of the life cycle of disasters and help us to get it right and to invest more in that preparedness stage? Spatial data plays a huge role. And really, we can't succeed in um, lifting resilience to disasters without a greater use of spatial data, even before we get to the life cycle of, of disasters. Think about making decisions for investing and that that needs to be data-driven. Think about our political leaders and the need for them to show objectively why monies are flowing into one region over another. So the first place that we can use spatial data is to understand the high-risk areas, the areas that have potential in the future to be hit hard by fire or flood. And to that end at Mindaroo, we, we've developed what we're calling a National Resilience Index across 57,000 SA1s down to about 100 household level across 45 dimensions of resilience, a constantly refreshing index that shows the highest risk SA1s that can be aggregated into LGAs for different disaster types. The next thing that we need to do is be able to detect. And in the case of fire detection, we think the best way to do that is a combination of ground sensing and earth observation, LEO-based earth observation or stratospheric earth observation. Once we detect and even combined with the high risk area analysis, we need to understand spread models, whether it's floods and water, whether it's fire and fire spread modeling, to be able to assess what's gonna happen next and get ahead of these disasters in time and space. The next thing that we need to do is we need to get the right information to the right people at the right time. And that's even communities. So strong messaging and alerting systems is one of the reasons that despite the number of disasters increasing and severity of the weather shifts, 
the actual loss of life has been decreasing over time associated with disasters. And a lot of that is effective messaging and communication systems to evacuate people from high risk areas. So getting the right information to the right people at the right time is critical. And that includes SES, RFS, emergency services and others. And then we need to respond. And response as well requires situational awareness and even down to the use of data at an individual and personal level for monitoring the health of people and the location of people that are first responders in these events. And then for recovery, we again call on spatial data to assess damage. And an effective way to do that is through aerial imagery and satellite imagery. And then in terms of building resilience, we need to look at things like, in the case of fires, fuel loads. And we're running a pilot right now. We've instrumented 70,000 square kilometres of New South Wales terrain with a new system that combines satellite imagery with LIDAR to get down to almost single tree resolution from space to be able to build high, high fidelity fuel maps to be able to understand canopy height, canopy type, fuel laddering characteristics of that vegetation. So as you can see, the whole way through, we're completely ineffective and will be increasingly ineffective if we don't draw more heavily on spatial data to deal with natural disasters and lift resilience to them. This is something that the federal government obviously takes seriously as well when we consider the last budget. Reframing the opportunity and national EO mission focused on disasters means that we actually have more funding available to us, which is a fantastic outcome for everyone involved in spatial data. How can we leverage this to really create traction on impact around minimising harm when it comes to natural disasters? In recent years, we've had some really positive developments from the federal government and also state governments too. We've had At the federal level, the establishment of the National Recovery and Resilience Agency, whose purpose is to plan and prepare ahead of time, as well as provide additional national coordination capability when we've got multi-jurisdictional disasters occurring. We've also seen at a state level the establishment of groups like Resilience New South Wales. In the most recent budget, we had a $1.2 billion announcement that the Australian Space Agency will be leading a new national Earth observation mission. We've been advocating heavily for that and also that disasters are a primary use case of that Earth observation national mission. And in fact, what we're building now is a global grand challenge to accelerate the development of new sorts of sensors that can be placed on low Earth orbit satellites and stratospheric platforms as well. And if we think about kind of four key elements of a national mission with an emphasis on disasters, we first of all, we've got to build the platforms themselves, the satellites in Australia has been clear and it's public that Australia is looking to secure sovereign capability and sovereign access to satellite platforms. The second piece is we need different types of remote sensing payloads that can 
for example, detect fire in real time or near real time. And that's an incredibly challenging problem technically, taking into account atmospheric distortions, false positives, so things like hot rocks showing up as fires and then being able to discern whether it's a dangerous fire or is, is it a campfire or is it is it a dangerous fire. So there's a huge amount of innovation in and around payloads and we believe that there should be, a, and we're leading the development of this now, a global grand challenge to accelerate the development of those payloads. Then there needs to be further development in and around machine learning. Also determining what machine learning and analysis takes place on the satellite and what data gets sent back to the ground. So the on-satellite computation and then the data sharing piece is also critical. So there's an opportunity here to solve for not only disasters, but if you think about how that technology and those sensor payloads can be applied to other markets like the agriculture, water, water management, even supply chains and looking at things like uh, uh, shipping and movements of products through a supply chain. So I think we're on the cusp of an exciting step change in the way that we use data and machine learning as societies that's as pivotal, I think, as the move we made from desktops to mobile computing. Again, we're going to have another step change as we have robust near real-time Earth observation capabilities. It really is exciting and it brings to mind so much about what possibilities exist out there that we're on the brink of finding out how to do. What might be some of the technology gaps in disaster response in Australia and globally, do you think? We've been involved not only domestically scanning and looking for technology gaps, and there's great groups here in the country like uh, Fire Tech Connect out of the Gold Coast, out of Brisbane, led by Lee Kelson, who's doing great work in technology innovation in and around disasters and fires. There's also groups in the Northern Hemisphere. So there's Wildfire Technology Funders Group that we're a part of and we've been feeding into. And there are some consistent themes coming out of those discussions, other work we're feeding into. There are gaps really along each step. So first of all, around modelling, we need further innovation and research. A model is only an approximation of the physical world and we saw that in the Black Summer fires where the fuel load was thicker and denser and led to different fire burning characteristics than were anticipated in those models. So the models are only an approximation. We need to continue to uh, ground truth. And those models increasingly need to take into account microclimates as well. We also need free, open, sustained, accurate and standardised data. Massive limitation. We completely applaud the investment in the creation of the Australian Climate Services Centre. But a lot of these government programs focus on data sharing within government and not making data available to third parties to innovate on and around. And I know that from the Data 61 experience, and we led standards advisory work for open banking and consumer data rights. 
a huge innovation leap forward when data is made open. And here, this is incredibly important too, because we're on the cusp again. Like if we think about mobile platforms and how a lot of the larger platforms have become vertically integrated and almost monopolistic, right? Where you've got a single vendor that's exerting enormous control over entire value chain because of the data models that underlie it. We believe strongly that there's going to need to be a public good utility aspect to Earth observation for disasters that should be legislated in for making sure that that data is available always to government and key stakeholders to be able to innovate on and around. There also needs to be new systems for integrating uh, ground, air and satellite data. There's a lot of innovation too that needs to happen down at the risk mapping uh, level down at the individual local neighbourhood or even down to a household level. Speaking with folks in the insurance industry, there's no central registry of household risk and household data that could deliver enormous value to not only homeowners in the form of you know, decreased premiums or, or mortgages, but just decrease the risk, the potential for physical loss, loss of life, right the way through to we need to have better capability for mapping fuel load. There's technology gaps around the use of virtual and augmented reality for training. There's human-centered design making better use of social science insights for the way that we message and communicate and look to drive behavioral change around disasters, better planning tools. I mean, there's an endless list here and I'm going to be going into a lot of detail around a handful of the ones that we think are the most critical ones that also represent not only public good benefit here, but also economic benefit and economic spillover benefit through uh, solving those. Probably the last one worth mentioning is autonomous systems. There is work being done in terms of using autonomous systems to help for reconnaissance and get better ground truth data to augment firefighting capability. But uh, even there, we need to make progress from a legislative point of view and a certification point of view to get clearer about what the technology needs to evolve to so that our regulators will allow these unmanned vehicles to fly concurrently with manned vehicles in and around disasters and make sure that that's safe. So technology gaps are one part of the problem and you've raised some really critical ones there. What about policy and governance gaps to bring it all together? There are several areas for policy changes to lift resilience. The first one is the national settings. 97% of our national spend on response and recovery is not good enough. We are collectively doing a disservice to Australians and Australia by maintaining those settings, seeing the devastation up close that's completely unnecessary Again and again, we're on a treadmill. The only way we get off that is by changing the national settings and there's policy innovation there. The second is area I mentioned around autonomous systems. There's some work that can be done there. There's 
work that can be done around zoning of land and making sure that we're not building in the first place in high-risk areas. We're providing disincentives to build in floodplains or high-risk bush environments. The other one is data and open data and being clear about we think the application of the consumer data rights model, which basically is a principle that individuals and entities and corporations should control their own data and they should define the circumstances under which that data is shared. So if you think about consumer data rights applied to banking, it means that if I'm looking to secure a home loan, I can make my banking history available to competing banks to offer me more and competitive services. That same principle can be applied to the insurance sector for um, delivering better products, more innovation and greater levels of competition for Australians in being able to insure against disasters, which is very data-driven, right, in terms of understanding the risks, quantifying the risks, pricing the risks. And insurance pricing is often a proxy for how risky an area is. And there are many areas in Australia that are becoming uninsurable because of the risk of disasters or natural hazards to those areas. So that's another area of uh, legislative change or innovation that can take place. Another area that we think is important is uh, temporary accommodation and the establishment of national coordination mechanisms for temporary housing. If you look at the flood situation right now, there's an announcement of setting up facilities for 2,000 temporary housing units, but everyone is scrambling to deliver that now versus having thought about it ahead of time and having a nationally consistent approach to temporary accommodation and using spatial data to plan ahead of time as to, to where we might create clusters of temporary accommodation in the event of uh, a fire and the flood. Floods particularly because they're taking place in urban environments. My word, we have a lot to do. We have a lot to do, but there's an immense opportunity here. Australia should be, if not the, a global leader in disaster resilience. And we should be, just by nature of our land, our environment, our extreme weather, the hazards that we're exposed to, investing to lift resilience ahead of time. Lots of interesting technology problems to be solved by doing that. Incredible use of spatial data by doing that. And we can export that know-how and methodology. So there's not only the societal and the environmental benefit here, but there's, there's also the... Uh, the economic potential here and the economic spillover from these solutions and approaches. You're completely correct there. I feel as though this is an area where so much can be done, but it's to our full advantage to be investing time, effort, money into getting this right. And not only can we help ourselves, but we can help the rest of the world as well. You mentioned the resilience dividend before. What is the resilience dividend and why is this way of thinking going to be increasingly important as we see further impacts of climate change over the coming years, indeed, already? 
we're not wired to think ahead of time. Like if you, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about cybersecurity and cybersecurity risk, or we're talking about health and preventative health. Our economic systems and our psyche, the way we think, is to not think far ahead in terms of planning. And even our political cycles of three years. And if you look at where in the country this happens today, we're talking about missions and, and sustained investment and focus over multiple terms of government. The place that happens today, independent of the politics of the day, is the military. And there's a case to be made that we're spending huge amounts of money, huge amounts of money to invest in systems for potential existential external threats to our sovereignty, while at the same time, in this area of disaster resilience and even response and recovery, the level of spending is, is relatively small. And those groups are fighting tooth and nail for tiny, tiny amounts of investment and support. And yet here we've got an extreme and existential threat in these disasters and, and the weather turning up every year impacting Australians on our own soil, we need to think of it in those terms of we've got an intergenerational existential threat in the form of extreme weather events and disasters, and we need to mobilise in a way that we've effectively mobilised military, right, in, in terms of long-term thinking and planning and scenario modelling, long-term investment in infrastructure, technology and systems international relationships and coordination across northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere partners to be sharing learnings and some of this does happen today learnings year on year to accelerate lifting our resilience to these events the resilience dividend is framing that forward-looking investment because it's also difficult to know like we invest a dollar and there's a disaster you know, if we had not have invested that dollar, it can be hard to quantify how the outcome would have been different. And it can be done and it has been done. So we need to frame in terms of and quantify what's the benefit that we're going to get back in today's terms. And that was the thinking behind the resilience dividend. Let me give you another example where we have a lot of goodwill and intent, but it's focused not in forward planning or thinking ahead as much as it needs to be. And that's volunteerism in the country. We have incredible goodwill from Australians in and around volunteering, good intent. You look at RFS, if not the one of the biggest volunteering organisations in the world, SES the same. We've got organisations like Red Cross, Salvation Army, Disaster Relief Australia that's um, ex-veterans. Enormous goodwill and volunteering capacity those volunteers are focused primarily on recovery, response and recovery. And that's why we've stood up in the last months what we call the Australian Resilience Corps. Think of it as like part Peace Corps, part Reservist. And corporate Australia is standing up and making it available to their employees to get into communities in the off-season and engage in community-led programs to lift resilience. 
those community-led programs are defined through the use of spatial data, satellite data, machine learning and analytics to analyze the high-risk interventions that are needed in that community, including things like fuel load. But that's where you know, technology is meeting people with good intent and we, we need to shift the focus from after the event to before the event and preparation, and that's what we're focused on. What role does collaboration play in all of this, especially in facilitating the successful use of spatial data in keeping communities safe? Collaboration is crucial. And because of the way our federation is set up, response to disasters is a state-based role. And at the same time, the federal government can provide coordination capabilities and additional situational awareness data to support that effort. And particularly as it's multi-jurisdictional or there's a state of emergency declared. And the federal government in some cases can drive short-term regulatory changes to help in the response to and recovery from a disaster. And we've seen that in terms of some of the financial support that's gone into flood victims at a state level. And we saw it with the Black Summer fires as well. But the area that it shows up every day, for us, the importance of this collaboration is around data and data sharing. because. If you don't have access to the right data, then as we spoke about before through the life cycle of the disaster, we're not gonna be as effective in responding to the disaster. And more specifically, there needs to be national standards in the way that we describe even physical environment. We're involved in a project with 19 other organizations that we've substantially invested into to develop bushfire data standards so that fire-related data can be shared between states and consumed by their systems to be able to make better decisions about risk and about what a fire may do next. There also needs to be collaboration between government and industry and that boundary between government and industry probably needs to shift in and around lifting resilience. So, you know, when we started into this program and we've got a collection of 80 partners now in and around the Mindaroo work, major banks, telcos, reinsurers, a lot of NGOs and nonprofits, as well as government, what we found is even in the last two years, the conversation has moved from one that's led by the CSR or corporate social responsibility function inside these corporations to being led by a chief risk officer that's looking at business continuity and the impact that disasters has on the the core operations of that bank or that telco or that energy company. And many of them are regulated to be taking proactive steps to lift resilience in their infrastructure and their business to be able to ensure that, for example, there is power in the event of a disaster or on the heels of a disaster, or there is telecommunications access, phone access. Just think about in the case of a disaster, 
people use their phones. It's their lifeline, particularly if they're away from home, right? And it's a camera, it's a communication device. But if there's no power, you've only got that lifeline for as long as the battery, as long as there's charge. So, so these things become critical. Power becomes critical as an example. So there needs to be, and there, there are initiatives that are underway here to drive tighter collaboration between industry and government, including out of Emergency Management Australia, big push and recognition of the importance that industry can play, leaning into be part of the solution. So we can't succeed here. This is a system level problem. We cannot succeed without deep collaboration across the different stakeholder groups. If everyone changes their behaviour, their level of investment a tiny bit, the whole country benefits, everybody wins. It's a no-brainer. It really is. And I am confident that we'll get there one day, even if that one day might take a bit of work. I'm absolutely confident that this system will flip. It just makes too much sense and there's too much recognition on the heels of these floods that the current state of the way that we approach natural disasters is flawed. I'm, I'm really optimistic that uh, we're, we're going to get it together here as a country. Speaking of systemic problems, as we work with machine learning and other automation in spatial data, why is keeping diversity and inclusion at the forefront of our thinking and processes important so that we don't transfer our own biases into the codes we create? So, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a big question, right? And particularly if we're training models on historical data. If we take diversity in terms of, you know, that can be viewed through a gender diversity lens, it can also be viewed through a diversity of approach lens. So if the only data that we have is historical data in, for example, dealing with a disaster, and those disasters have different characteristics today, and, and they do, by the way, if you talk with fire services, they'll tell you that the characteristics and the way the fires are burning are different. But if you're training those models on the past, you bring forward the limitations and the inherent biases in the way that we fought those fires in the past. And you know, an example is fuel load management. There's ways that we've gone about determining fuel load in the past and some of those human-centered biases can be carried forward into you know, automated ways of looking at and assessing fuel load. The flip side is... I don't think we can just rely on these algorithms and automated systems. We are strong advocates for human in the loop analysis. You've got somebody or, or professionals that have spent decades looking and living and fighting these disasters, dealing with these disasters, and there's so much kind of intuition and experience embedded there that should not be discounted that should be combined with the algorithms and the machine learning. So, Adrian, your passion is so clear as we're talking. What excites you about where our industry is headed at the moment and what scares you? The thing I'm most excited about right now is this shift towards a new 
national and global infrastructure to be able to look back at the planet and instrument physical environments, whether it's buildings or natural environments. And out of that will become more effective ways for dealing with disasters. Out of that will come new standards for describing natural assets uh, in the same way that we have accounting standards for companies to measure the financial performance and the attributes of the company, balance sheets, P&L statements. We will develop standards for the natural environment, the way we describe you know, a river, a brook, a stream, a creek. Even that needs to be consistent. And we will have standards-based ways to measure the health of a landscape over time. And we'll do that remote instrumentation using Earth observation. And what that will do is unlock new economic models and financial models for active land management. So I think that excites me on one end, as well as at the same time, drawing on knowledge and methods used, for example, through Indigenous practices. So it's that combination of leading edge, tip of the spear, technology combined with people, know-how, knowledge and insights that can span generations and you know, even tens of thousands of years. And that's incredibly exciting to me, that, that combination. What scares me is that we're now building a new global infrastructure. And if we've got concerns about the way that big tech has pervaded our lives and the influence that these algorithms have had to drive behavioral change and fragmentation in society, there's a new piece of infrastructure that's going to be circling the planet. And if the right controls are not put in place, if the right architecture and design from a technology point of view, from a regulatory point of view, it's like the Wild West, right? Space is still highly unregulated. And yet you've got effectively, you know, these communication networks, sensor networks that can get down to such high resolution, right? In meters, you know, even in some cases, centimeter resolution from space, always on. It's, it's that scares the hell out of me because I don't see, and we've been looking hard, fast enough progress being made. And there's a lot of competing interests, even country, national interests. You look at times where the world should come together to solve and solve a problem together and develop a consistent point of view. And we don't have a very good track record of that. So that's the thing, that, that's the other side. And technology is neither inherently good or bad. It's how we apply it. And that's the other side of that coin. Enormous opportunity, but let's get settings right now, including the regulatory settings. So, Adrian, I'd really like to focus the conversation back onto you as a person now. What are some things that you enjoy doing outside of work and how do you relax and rejuvenate? Well, first of all, at a personal level, I'm engaged in this because I was stuck in the fires with my two brothers. We fought for six and a half hours with neighbours in the house. We saved the property, but we shouldn't have come out of it. And we were told by RFS we shouldn't have come out of it as well. And when we did, we said we, we, we all actually, myself and my brothers, we want to give back. Um, so this is a way to give back and help make sure no one else has to experience what, 
what I've personally experienced with my brothers and, and those others and lots of other people around Australia. What I personally enjoy and how I relax, for me, it's art. I love art. I enjoy doing art and I enjoy, you know, experiencing uh, other people's art as well. And I lose time in and around art. And for me, that's the biggest test of, you know, you know the passion is, uh, is what do you do that you lose time in? And for me, that's art. Wow, Adrian, that really hit home there. I can't imagine that experience of fighting through the fires. I'm That's so... Awful. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. No. I have to say, if, if everything going on at Locate, I am so seriously excited to hear your keynote presentation and I can just feel the purpose and passion rising through from you. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today. You're welcome. Thank you.